28th October 1924, the headline in the New York Times reads, Another Man Dies from Insanity Gas. The story tells of the death of a second oil worker at a New Jersey oil plant within just a few days. In the following week, three more workers would die and more than 30 of them would go on to suffer from hallucinations, memory loss and convulsions. All of them had been working on a crucial ingredient for a new type of gasoline. The company knew they had to respond quickly if they didn't want the news to spread around the country. A man named Thomas Midgley Jr., who had worked on developing the new gasoline, was called in to do some damage control. Two days later, he organized a press conference. Midgley told the invited journalists that the new ingredient was not dangerous at all. To convince them, he washed his hands in the liquid and told them he wouldn't be doing that if it were dangerous. Little did the journalists know, Midgley had just come back from sick leave. He'd been suffering from lead poisoning. This is Ozone. Great things have been done, but much more remains to be accomplished. Some young man, perhaps one watching this very picture, may develop a startling new formula from a test tube experiment, may give the world finer things to use, to wear, to better man's health. In this new world of industrial chemistry, the horizon is unlimited. Unexplored potentialities beckon. Hidden secrets of nature sound a call to this young man, the industrial chemist, the pioneer of tomorrow. Thomas Midgley Jr. was born in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania in 1889. His father was an early inventor in the automobile industry who developed removable tire rims. His grandfather patented many devices used in woodworking and metalworking machinery, but it would be Midgley Jr. who would become the family's most famous inventor. By the end of his life, he would be granted more than 100 patents and become known as the man who almost destroyed the world. What follows is the story of how Midgley inadvertently caused the ozone hole. Pretty soon after Midgley graduated from Cornell University in New York, he started working in the burgeoning automobile industry, like father, like son. In 1911, the year he graduated, there were barely more than 600,000 cars in the U.S., but that was also the year when Charles Kettering patented the electric engine starter, replacing the dangerous hand crank that was used to start early automobiles. Two years later, Ford started production on its famous assembly line, and by the end of the decade, there were already more than 8 million cars in the U.S. By then, the Roaring Twenties were in full swing. The decade marked a break with tradition of all sorts as modern technology reached large parts of the population in the U.S. and across parts of Europe. Women rejected the restraints of the Victorian era and won the right to vote in many countries. Nations saw rapid industrial and economic growth. The first modern celebrities appeared. In France, the decade became known as the crazy years, les années folles, and in Germany as the golden twenties. It was the age of motion pictures, radio, jazz, dancing, and most importantly, 
automobiles. The accelerating rate of men's progress in all fields of endeavor has paralleled closely our progress in the freedom of movement from place to place. New things to do and new ways to do them. Telephone, electric lights, automobiles, aircraft, all are symbols of better living. New places to go and new means of getting there. The car became the center of middle and working class life. It was a source of freedom and travel, completely reinventing the way most people lived. But the cars of the early 20s had an issue that was yet to be fixed, engine knocking. This referred to the tendency of cars of the era to make a loud, explosive sound inside the engine. Some blamed Kettering's self-starters, but he suspected there was something wrong with the fuel. At that time, Midgley was working under Kettering at General Motors, who gave him the task of studying this problem. Very quickly, Midgley proved he was up to the job. An extract from a corporate film made a few years later explains how Midgley fixed the problem. Did you ever see a knock knocking? Well, I did. What caused the knock? That's what everybody wanted to know prior to 1922. Some said it was a mechanical knock, and then suspicion fell upon the fuel. So they built a quartz window in a test engine, and these detectives of research watched the gasoline villain at work, and they got the evidence. Gasoline was burning unevenly and compressing and heating the unburned portion of the charge until it suddenly exploded, producing an audible banging noise. Some chemical was needed to control the burning of the fuel. And finally it was discovered that a rare compound of lead mixed in proper proportions with gasoline made an ideal anti-knock fuel. This new fuel was tried in a test engine with the quartz window. And not only could they see the villain become blue with defeat, but the knock was gone. Horsepower increased, speed picked up, and the engine actually cooled off considerably. And so, as a result of research in fuels, progress marched on. Midgley's answer to engine knocking was lead, or more precisely, tetraethyl lead, a compound discovered some 60 years earlier. Midgley's scientific method? He simply tried a lot of different additions before identifying tetraethyl as a possible solution. The only problem, lead, is poisonous. And even back then, that was not new information. Its toxicity has been known since ancient times. Hippocrates described lead poisoning in 400 BC. Roman architect Vitruvius wrote that water from earthenware pipes was healthier than from lead pipes, which was, he said, harmful to the body. In 17th century Germany, lead was even banned in one region when it was discovered that a lead-based wine sweetener was the cause of a local epidemic of colic. So lead's toxicity was well recorded even at the beginning of the 20th century. Jamie Lincoln Kitman, lawyer and veteran automotive journalist, wrote extensively about the history of leaded gasoline. His work on lead in gasoline won him an investigative reporting award. Kitman says the people involved in the production of tetraethyl lead were more than aware how dangerous lead was. There was definitely awareness that it was poisonous because they kept poisoning themselves making it and workers were dying in their factories. 
they, in their private correspondence, referred frequently to, you know, how dangerous it was. And Midgley had to decline speaking engagements in the 1920s because he was recovering from lead poisoning. That happened to him several times. And of course, he didn't help his situation any by doing public demonstrations where he'd wash his hands and lead gasoline. And when he didn't keel over dead, he would say, see, it's fine. This, however, didn't prevent Midgley from patenting the new gasoline additive under its new name, ethyl. And because of the patent, unlike other possible anti-knock agents, ethyl had a chance of turning a profit for the company. The mass production of ethyl started soon afterwards. The new gasoline was marketed for its fuel-saving and speed-increasing attributes, but there was no mention of lead. One of the plants that was producing tetraethyl lead was the facility in Elizabeth, New Jersey, which will, soon enough, find itself in national headlines. The incident, which resulted in five deaths and more than 30 hospitalizations, led to the factory being called the Looney Building. Soon, the local government shut down the plant and discouraged people from buying the gasoline. In a matter of months, ethyl was gone from the East Coast market, but it was still being sold elsewhere in the U.S. The U.S. Public Health Service set up a hearing to investigate the dangers of leaded gasoline, but it seemed like most in the government were focusing solely on the effect the tetraethyl lead production had on the factory workers. Two prominent public health advocates came out strongly against leaded gasoline. Alice Hamilton, the first woman appointed to the faculty of Harvard University and a leading lead poisoning expert, testified against the use of lead in gasoline as she considered it both a menace to public health and the environment. But nobody spoke more loudly against ethyl than Yandel Henderson, who appropriately studied the toxicology of gases. He is recorded saying, The public is not in great danger of the acute poisoning which caused several deaths and many cases of insanity recently. But the breathing day by day of fine lead dust from automobiles using leaded gasoline will produce chronic lead poisoning on a large scale in the populations of cities. Henderson described lead in gasoline as the greatest health menace the public ever faced. The industry responded with their own science, particularly through a man named Robert Kehoe. They forwarded a series of, of you know, disingenuous, if not, you know, complete lie arguments that were well, it's A, it stays in the engine, so don't worry. B, it falls harmlessly to the ground. And then as they started concocting their own essentially junk science, they argued that, well, people have naturally high lead levels anyway. At the point where they're arguing that the people have high lead levels in their bodies, Kehoe uh, does a study where they go to, to South America to study uh, an ancient civilization. Uh, and ironically, one can only imagine with some intention, they go to a community that was um, basically uh, uh, manufactured pottery and had extraordinarily high lead levels in their, their clay. Um, and so they, everybody was, you know, rubbing their hands in that all the time. And that was their basis for concluding that people always had high lead levels. Make sure to remember the name Robert Kehoe. He's going to be a recurring character in our story. In part due to Kehoe's studies, the warnings from prominent scientists fell on deaf ears. On January 20, 1926, investigators appointed by the Surgeon General 
announced they found no good grounds to prohibit the use of ethyl gasoline in automobiles. But that was not the whole story. That same day, a small article about the announcement appeared in the New York Times. Buried at the end of the article, there was an extract from the investigation report. It remains possible that if the use of leaded gasoline becomes widespread, conditions may arise very different from those studied by us, which would render its use more of a hazard than it would appear to be the case from this investigation. Longer experience may show that even such slight storage of lead as was observed in these studies may lead eventually in susceptible individuals to recognizable lead poisoning or chronic degenerative diseases of a less obvious character. And they would misrepresent the findings of the Surgeon General's report uh, in 1926, saying, well, this, this proves that it's safe. That's absolutely not what it said. It said that, you know, we think it can be manufactured safely, as opposed to the way it had been where dozens of people were dying, you know, uh, in factories. Um, but, but we should study it more. Ethyl production carried on. By 1936, there would be 24 million cars in the U.S., and tetraethyl lead would be added to 90% of the gasoline sold across the U.S. Advertised as being perfectly safe, leaded gasoline would be exported around the world for decades to come. Factories would be set up in many other countries. It would become so omnipresent that people would forget that lead was an additive rather than an essential part of gasoline. It would take years before studies to challenge the corporate science were funded. All of this took decades to disprove, and it was completely debunked by the 1960s, although in the 1920s, when it was launched, there was a, a good awareness among the medical communities, uh, public health professionals, trade unions, that it was, it was fundamentally and irrevocably dangerous. It would be another 60 years before the world woke up to the dangers of leaded gasoline and governments around the world started implementing bans. And it wouldn't be until 2021 the United Nations announced the phase-out was complete. In the statement released to mark the occasion, the UN said, 2021 has marked the end of leaded petrol worldwide after it has contaminated air, dust, soil, drinking water and food crops for the better part of a century. Leaded petrol causes heart disease, stroke, and cancer. It also affects the development of the human brain, especially harming children, with studies suggesting it reduced IQ by 5 to 10 points. Banning the use of leaded petrol has been estimated to prevent more than 1.2 million premature deaths per year, to increase IQ points among children, to save $2.45 trillion for the global economy, and to decrease crime rates. As for Thomas Midgley, by 1925, before ethyl was allowed into production again, he had already moved on to other projects, not before taking another leave of absence from work due to lead poisoning. In the late 20s, Midgley started working on refrigerators and air conditioning, and that's when he synthesized some of the world's first chlorofluorocarbons, CFCs, remember them? These chemical compounds would go on to become the primary cause of ozone depletion in the atmosphere. Midgley patented them under their commercial name, Freon. Freon uh, was a non-flammable gas 
Uh, and so Midgley would do demonstrations, which was the thing he did with lead, where he'd wash his hands, where he'd inhale in front of an audience. He'd inhale Freon and blow out a match to prove that it was uh, non-flammable. That probably did not help his health either. By 1940, Midgley developed polio, and four years later, he died strangled by a device he concocted himself to help him to get out of bed. Since his death, Midgley has been called the most dangerous man of all time. One writer described him as a one-man environmental disaster, while another wrote that Midgley had a more adverse impact on the atmosphere than any other single organism in Earth's history. Next time on Ozone, we explore how chlorofluorocarbons were invented and why they were once referred to as miracle chemicals. Subscribe to Climate Solutions so you don't miss the next chapters of Ozone, the story of how we dealt with the biggest environmental disaster humanity encountered until climate change. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and wherever you get your podcasts. This was Climate Solutions from the European Investment Bank. Jamie Lincoln Kitman's award-winning story, The Secret History of Lead, featured in this episode, was published in the March 20th, 2000 issue of The Nation.